Today, scripture reading is from Matthew 6, verses 1 and verses 5 through 8. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, or then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when people do not, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you have need before you, at, before you ask him. Well, good morning. It is good to be able to continue in worship with the body of Christ. Well, last week, we began to look at the difference between the true piety that Jesus called his disciples to against the religious practice as was exercised by the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, in this section of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, we uh, last week talked about how Jesus will be giving us three different religious duties of, of giving to the needy, praying, and fasting and in these three different ways, showing us what, what not to do in regards to what the Pharisees and the scribes were guilty of, how they practiced their righteousness. They did these good works so that other people would see them, so that they might elevate themselves. But instead, Jesus gives us direction about how his disciples were to practice these three religious duties. And they looked quite different from what the Pharisees were practicing. Last week, we talked about giving to the needy. This week and next week, we'll talk about prayer. And then the week following, we will talk about fasting. So of course, this morning, since we'll be looking at prayer, it may be helpful for us to come up with a solid working definition of what prayer is. Let's make sure, let's not just to try to assume that we all know what we're talking about, but talk, let's, let's come together for a concise definition. Thankfully, our catechism helps us in this regard. Question 109 of the Baptist Catechism asks the question, what is prayer? And the answer, I think, is, is a good answer to work with. It says The answer is prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So I want you to keep those elements in your mind this week and next as we discuss and we look at the text of, the, of Christ on prayer. That's the expressing of the desires of our hearts to God according to the revealed, revealed will of God 
in the name of Christ and through our union with Christ, involving the confession of our sins as we give thankful praise from our hearts for the grace and the mercy that we have been shown. And ask yourself as we look at our text today, how do those elements relate to the way that the scribes and Pharisees prayed? How do those relate to the ways that the Gentiles prayed? And how do those elements relate to your own experience in prayer? Well, I'd ask you once more to join me in prayer as we can, before we continue in our text this morning. Father, we confess the weakness of our prayer lives. I confess my weakness. I confess my heart is so often made content in lesser things than in communion with my Lord and my God. I'm so often made content with simply reaching out and, and saying things that are on my heart or that I, that I want or what I need. I'm so easily content with powerlessness. Father, I desire power in prayer. I desire power in your word, in my life, in this church. Father, don't let us be content with less. Don't let us just go through the motions. Don't let us pray or give or fast or do anything else so that other people will see us. But let it come out of service to you, out of love for you, out of a desire to experience the freedom in this life that you have promised us in your spirit. Freedom over sin, over bondage. Freedom to serve our King. Power greater than we have seen. Father, I pray that you would move among us. Even as we discuss prayer, that you would make us a people driven to prayer, that you would create within us a greater longing for communion with the Father. Don't let us settle for less, Father, I pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we continue this morning, I want you to recall how this whole section was introduced as it was read for us this morning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In our discussion of prayer, we need to realize, we need to be aware, to warn ourselves that there is a real temptation in praying to do so in front of men, to be seen by the eyes of men, to be approved by men. 
When it, when it comes to living out our faith, our good works can be done to honor God or they can be done to honor ourselves, to make much of ourselves. And this is so deceptive because it can be very difficult for anybody else to know the difference when we give or when we pray or when we fast. It's hard for other people to know the difference between whether we are seeking to honor God or we are doing so in order to impress men. Well, we might be able to fool other people, but it is God who looks to the heart. It is God who is the one from whom we desire reward, or at least from whom we ought to desire reward. And if from the heart we are seeking the praise of men, we might find it, though it will always be less than we hoped for, and we will find nothing else. Beloved, it is not enough to just do good things. We must do those good things with the right motives. If our heart is right and our intentions are to honor and please God, then regardless of how that results, regardless of how we are treated, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, we will have reward from our Father in heaven who sees what is in our heart, who sees what is done in secret, and rewards those who are faithful to him. Of course, that does not mean that it's our intentions alone that determine the righteousness of our actions. Heaven forbid we get that wrong. Just think of the horrors that have been justified by men because they said that their intentions were good in their actions. No, it is only those things commendable to God that can please him. And then only when they are done for his glory and not for our own. Remember, as we discussed last week, each of these religious practices, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting, each of these are assumed by Christ to be a part of his disciples' life. Just as when he gave us instruction about giving to the poor, Jesus doesn't here command us to pray. He assumes that his disciples pray. Of course, the disciple of Christ will be a person of prayer. Remember that there is no concept in Scripture of a faith that does not work itself out in action. If we believe, we will do what that belief demands. As James wrote, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And later, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is not a new problem. There have always been people that have wanted to claim a faith that their lives did not display. Satitude was present in the early church, and the apostles warned against it time and again, and this attitude is present today. And James boldly declared that any so-called faith does, that does not work itself out in good works or in the religious duties that Christ assumes of his disciples in our passage this morning 
is no faith at all. See, a Christian who does not pray is a Christian who does not have any communion with the Father. They are a Christian whose faith does not even flow out of them in the most basic means. I can't even imagine what this would look like. Matthew Henry Henry described it this way. They said, you may as soon find a living man who does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. I cannot imagine or conceptualize what it would be to have a Christian who does not pray. See, when Christ spoke about his disciples, he was not talking about these hypocrites that might call themselves disciples, people that might call themselves believers, yet whose lives display nothing of the call that Christ placed on them. He was speaking of those who genuinely follow him, those who obey his commandments because they love him, those whose lives give evidence that Christ is actually theirs, that they are actually in Christ, that they are actually indwelled by the spirit of the living God. And a life of prayer is evidence of the work that Christ has done within us. Prayer is a basic and important piece of what it means to be a child of God. Just as you can imagine, there is no real relationship between a child and a father if that child never communicates with their father. Such there is no relationship between the father and a person if they do not communicate with him. For it's just as important as we will see in our text this morning as Christ lays out for us is how and why we pray. Well, the scriptures have a lot to say about prayer. From the beginning, prayer has been the lifeblood of a man's relationship with God. And unfortunately, we will not have the time today to cover exhaustively what scripture has to say about prayer. As much as I play fast and loose with time, I wouldn't try to attempt that. Prayer is the way that we grow to love God. It is the way that we grow in our knowledge of God, especially when we utilize God's word in our prayer. Prayer is the way that we learn to trust God. It is in prayer that even when we don't have the words to express, the aching that goes on within us, either the emptiness or the longing, the pain, even the joy, when we don't have those words, it is in prayer that the Spirit of God within us communicates directly with the Father in words we cannot comprehend to express ourselves at our core to the Father that He might celebrate with us or give us comfort or peace. Adam and Eve walked in communion with God in the garden. 
I cannot imagine what that would have been like. Even as I long one day to be able to be in the presence of my king, freed from this body of death. And even after that perfect communion that they enjoyed was shattered, men continued to long for a relationship with God. Just one chapter after we read of the fall in Genesis, we read in chapter 4 that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So even after this great chasm was formed between man and God, when man could no longer walk side by side in the presence of God, it did not take long for men to, to continue to want to commune with God and for God, who is merciful and gracious beyond any measure that we can imagine, to find a way through prayer to commune with sinful man. Cast out of his presence, man found communion with God in prayer. The righteous throughout Scripture were noted as being a people of prayer. They desired to know God, and they trusted that God cared for them, and that God loved them, and they experienced that trust and that love in prayer. Of course, our Savior, more than anyone else in Scripture, greatly valued prayer. Though he was himself God, and though for all eternity before had enjoyed perfect unity, perfect union with the Father, Christ valued and Christ needed prayer when he walked this earth. Christ at times prayed openly. Christ at times prayed so that others might hear and learn, that others might hear and be edified. Yet most of his prayer life was conducted in secret. As this popular prophet walking the land, having crowds come from all across the land, wanting to be healed, this mighty prophet who banished sickness and disease from the land, this mighty prophet would rise early in the morning while it was yet dark to escape the people. Even this man found time in a schedule that was busier than any of us, though we think we know what busy means, a schedule busier than we can imagine, more fatigued than we understand. He found time to sneak out, to be alone with God because he knew he needed Prayer. He needed time, communion with the Father. Well, next week, we're going to look at the model prayer, which is often called the Lord's Prayer, that Christ gave his disciples in order to teach them to pray. Yet I think John 17 probably gives us a better window in what Christ's prayers were actually like. So I invite you to, to turn with me to John chapter 17, and we'll read the first five verses together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. When Jesus had said these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you are the only true God in Christ Jesus whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Jesus longed for the communion that he had previously enjoyed with the Father as he walked this earth. A communion that he was willing to walk away from in order to accomplish the work that was set before him, that he was willing to walk away from in order to accomplish the redemption of God's people. And he found a taste of that close communion with the Father in his times of prayer. His love for the Father and his desire to be close to the Father drove him to prayer. It caused him to prioritize prayer to give up the little sleep he was allowed from all the masses following him, that he might be alone in prayer. Beloved, if the Son of God could not walk this earth void of communion with the Father, why is it that so often we think that we can? Our need and our weaknesses are greater than his, are they not? We are weighed down not only by human frailty that Christ willingly took upon himself, but we are weighed down also by the blackness of our flesh. How is it that this great combination of our need and even the most basic love for God the Father does not more regularly and more fervently drive us to prayer. May God forgive us. Jesus, once again, in our passage today, tells his disciples that they were not to practice their religion as the hypocrites did. When it came to giving to the poor, the hypocrites made a grand display of their gifts in order that all men might see their generosity, that all men might see their good works, might praise them for being so generous, so kind, so merciful on those who are lower than they. They gave in a way to elevate themselves above everyone around them. When it came to prayer... The hypocrites took every opportunity there as well to be seen by men. For just one example of what this looked like, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Remember in your mind, just keep this in mind, the Pharisee equaled those who were seen by the people to be the most pious and righteous people in the land, 
and the tax collectors were seen as no better than a prostitute. They were hated, the pariah on society. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, here we get an example of sincere prayer, and we get an example of the prayer of the hypocrite. One stood tall, confident in himself, drawing the attention of everyone around to himself. He expressed thankfulness at just how good of a person he was. Can you imagine? The other couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but was cast down in shame, beating his breast, pleading with mercy from God because he knew, he knew he was a sinner. Well, for the first All the glory of that prayer, all the glory of that display belonged to himself. And his public image was elevated and he received the full reward of his work. For the second, God's mercy, God's grace, God's goodness was elevated and God received the glory. And Jesus said that that man went home justified. That man went home with a reward from his father in heaven. Beloved, the chief end or the goal of the hypocrite's prayer is the celebration of his own righteousness for the praise and for the admonition of men. For the disciple, the chief end of prayer is communion with God flowing out of a love for God, out of a pursuit of holiness, that we might be more like our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. The disciples' desire is for communion with God, not for the praise of men. He can and he will experience communion with God when he is among the people of God and praise God for that. It is glorious to gather with the saints and to worship our God. Yet the disciple longs for those still, those quiet moments when it is just he and his God that private place where he can lay bare his soul and he can cry out to the one who is both able to help and the one who cares for him. 
The hypocrite's prayers are marked by presumption of what he is owed by God. Presumption of just how righteous he is. He is bold and quick to be seen in the acts of spiritual devotion. He uses many high and lofty words. He wants to display his wisdom and his intellect as he speaks about just how much better he is than those around him. He does not heed the words of Solomon, and there is no fear of God in his prayers. Turn with me quickly to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Psalms, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, and then chapter 5. Remember Solomon, the man considered to be the wisest man who ever lived short of our Savior. He said, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know, <coughs> excuse me, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you were on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The man who is wise carefully considers his words when he approaches God in worship and in prayer. Yes, it is true that we have freedom to be honest, to be open about where we're really at, what we're really feeling and thinking when we approach God in prayer. Yet even then, even in that quiet moment, wisdom dictates that we should evaluate our hearts and our motives before God. And wisdom often brings us to repentance, even as we are in the midst of very raw and unguarded prayer. Even in the quiet and the secluded room, God is still God, and we are not. Well, you might look at our passage today and ask, is Christ, is he declaring that all public prayer is, is bad? Is it all sinful? Is it all wrong? Why well, do not believe that Jesus in this passage is declaring all forms of corporate or public prayer to be sinful? If he were, then we in this church need to repent. Of course, if he was, then none of the apostles understood it that way. They all got it wrong. And the church throughout its whole history has got it wrong. Corporate prayer has been at the very center of the life of the church from in the very earliest of its days. The first Christians were known, they were marked by getting together to gather regularly for prayer. They would pray, they would read scripture, they would sing psalms and spiritual songs. If that isn't proof enough, well, the model prayer that we commonly call the Lord's Prayer that we'll be looking at next week is itself a communal, a corporate prayer. It's given to us 
in the plural, expecting to be used in the corporate setting. Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Well, just as the disciple of Jesus who does not pray or read is no disciple, so a church that does not pray is no real church. As an individual, we pray because we desire to commune with God. We desire to know Him. We want to love Him. We want to be loved by Him even more intimately and experientially. As an individual, we pray because we know that God alone is the one who can do anything. That all the trials in our life, we are hopeless against the trials of this world unless our God in heaven moves. So we pray to him because he alone is able. He knows our struggles. He knows our weaknesses and our cares. And he cares for us. We pray because we want to grow in Christ's likeness. We pray because we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. We want to be more like our master. And we are powerless on our own. Well, as a church, we come together and we pray for these same reasons. We desire as a local body to commune closely with God and have fellowship one with another. We come together to know God, to grow in our affection and our love for God, to grow in our devotion to God. We come together to place our desires and our needs at the feet of God, knowing that he cares for us, acknowledging that he alone can do anything about them. We come together in prayer that we as a body might collectively grow in Christ's likeness that we as a body might more clearly reflect the person and the glory of our risen Savior. It's just this simple. We pray corporately because we pray in secret. And we cannot help but desire to continue that prayer life when we are together as the body of Christ. At least that is what should be true of us. When a church does not pray together, when a church does not value and have high expectations for corporate prayer together, it is a clear indication of how well its members pray in secret. So we ought to, as a church, corporately, publicly pray together. Yet even so, we must take care that we do not pray more in public than we do in private. Private prayer, by far, is the better indicator of our spiritual condition. Even if we are not chasing the praise of men like the hypocrites, we might pray among other believers simply to save face, to avoid question about why we're remaining silent. When we pray in private, 
We do so either because we feel the need and the desire to commune with our Father, or because we want to feel that need, because we know we don't and we want it. So we try to push past our apathy and call upon God to give us a desire in our hearts for him. Public prayer carries much more opportunity for sin and for vanity. Just, just a quick note that even as corporate prayer here is not rejected by Christ, neither are long prayers or are prayers that have repetition in them. Remember that Jesus prayed all through the night just before he was betrayed. His disciples, the three closest disciples that he brought with him, fell asleep. And he woke them up and they fell asleep. And he woke them up, they fell asleep. He prayed fervently through the night, and what glimpses we have of his prayers, he repeated himself. So our passage today is not a condemnation of praying long or even using similar words or praying over similar themes in your prayer. And Jesus even taught his disciples that they ought to pray earnestly, giving them parables of the widow who would not be kept away, who would not stop knocking at the door of the governing official, knocking and saying, no, you must deal with this. And that her persistence was rewarded. Christ gives us an example to continue to persist in prayer. The point is that not that praying in public or praying long prayers or even saying similar things or repeating yourself in prayer itself is sinful, but that these things can easily be turned by men to sin if they are praying with the wrong motives. That in these kinds of things, there is temptation for vain glory Temptation such that the hypocrites and the pagans were guilty of. Jesus had this shepherding heart for his disciples. He was concerned for their hearts, and he wanted to point his disciples to humility and sincerity in prayer and away from those incentives that drove the ungodly. Just think of for these disciples, these early Jewish Christians the great examples they were raised with of what prayer looked like was from these hypocrites that led the masses in rebellion against the Messiah and crucified him. So their great examples for prayer were these ungodly hypocrites that Christ warns us against time and time again in the gospel. So they needed help to know what it was to really pray to, with a sincere heart to approach their God. Jesus told his disciples that they were to pray in secret and that God himself was in secret. Of course, what does he mean that the Father is in secret? Kind of sounds like a weird phrase. Well, that statement relates both that God himself is a spirit, 
Specifically speaking, God the Father is spirit, that he has no physical body like a man, that he is in fact invisible as well. That statement reflects that God is omnipresence, meaning that God is everywhere. So God is always present in all places, all at once, and we can't see him. God is in secret. He exists outside of our sense of time and space. It's a very hard concept for finite creatures bound by our linear experience of time to understand. Because we tend to think about that God exists somewhere within the universe. That if the universe is this room, then God is somewhere within. He might be big, he might be huge, but he's somewhere within creation. Yet, if we are to really conceptualize the omnipresence of God, we need to realize that God does not exist within creation, but all of creation exists within God. So God is bigger than creation. So there is nothing in the universe that is outside of God. It is all completely within the person of God, the Father. Remember that all of creation around us is but the spoken realization of the figment of God's imagination. So he imagined it in his mind. He spoke it into existence within himself. So God is everywhere, always, all at once. Well, the true piety of Christ's disciples practiced in the presence of the Father who is in secret is in direct contrast to the piety of the hypocrite. Remember that nobody can see God. We need to remember also that the vast majority of the spiritual life of God's children will be equally invisible to the world around them. It's a good thing to get into our minds. Most of our spiritual life, most of our religious devotion will not be seen by other people. The believer honors God in secret because what truly honors God, a heart that is devoted to him, devoted to his glory, cannot be seen by men but God alone. So when we desire that God gets all the glory, not only do we praise God most often in secret, not only is most of our prayer in secret, most of our religious devotion is secret, because most often people will not see what we're doing or our actions, or they will not understand what goes on in our hearts. So not only because of that do most of our religious devotions go unseen, yet even beyond that, we work so that people don't 
point to us so that they don't see it, so that they don't be tempted to glorify us rather than our Father in heaven. And when people do see, we are quick to deflect all praise to our Father in heaven. No, it is not me, it is Him. It is Him. Love it, if we are honest with ourselves, we know that we crave the applause of men. At least in some contexts, from some men, for some reasons. There is a part of me that craves applause. There's a part part of me that craves people saying, good job. Part of me that people, I want people to be able to say, "You you are good at this. And since we are prone to seeking such praise, beloved, we must take action to make sure that everything that we do is done in a way is to exclude any possibility of praise towards ourselves. One way that we can do that is to seek solitary places to pray. We can seek out those places and those times where nobody knows how long we pray for. Nobody can see how intent we are. Nobody can see us tremble before God or weep before him. We honor God in secret and our hearts should ever be before him. And even when we seek to honor God in secret, the world will notice. And as we have so conditioned ourselves to live only for God's glory, for God's joy, then it is the most natural thing in the world for us to point any reflection towards us back to our Father, so that even when people see us, our Father gets the glory, and He will be our reward. Jesus told His disciples not to pray like the hypocrites, and then later on in our passage, He told them not to pray like the Gentile. Of course, when He's speaking of the Gentile here, well, He's speaking of probably all of us if we're not Jewish. But more specifically, he's speaking to people that are outside of their religious tradition, those who are outside of the traditions of the Jewish people, the Jewish patriarchy, the Jewish religion. So the hypocrites were those ungodly that were within, and the pagan, the Gentiles, were those who were without. So Christians were warned against approaching God like the hypocrites and approaching God like the pagans do their false gods. But when men abandon the true God for idols fashioned by their own hands, they not only worship the wrong thing, but they worship the wrong things in the wrong ways. And their worship, the worship that they develop around these man-made objects, reflects the corruption of their heart. As we have talked about, true worship, true prayer, is designed around communing with God. 
Yet for the pagan, their worship resolves around what they can get from their God and from what they can do to manipulate their God to give them what they most desire. Pagan believes he must first try to grab his God's attention and then badger him and badger him and badger him until he gets what he wants or to try and buy him off to bribe these false gods so that they can do something for them. A great example of true prayer versus pagan prayer can be found in 1 Kings 18. So I invite you to turn with me there, 1 Kings 18, where we find Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. The Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, and then 1 Kings I'm going to read a large section from here, verses 20 through 40, and we'll see pagan prayer, and we'll see sincere prayer. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long will you go on limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them crying aloud. He mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out from upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah came to all the people. He said, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. 
After he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third. And they did it a third. And when the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have all done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. He is God. Then Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. But did you notice the difference between the prayer of the prophets of Baal and the prayers of the man of God? Baal's prophets cried out from morning till noon, repeatedly asking, Oh, Baal, answer us. They danced around the altar, hoping to get his attention, going to greater and greater extremes in their words and their actions. Yet nothing. Whereas Elijah taunted them, maybe your God is going to the bathroom. Maybe he's sleeping. Get louder. So they got louder. They danced more violently. And when I say violently, they danced with swords and lances, cutting their flesh, blood pouring out their bodies and as grand a display as they could imagine or that they could come up with so that their God would hear them. Yet there was silence. Their prayers are marked by repetition, volume, and grand physical displays. But how did the man of God pray? First, he took action to make sure that what was about to happen would be seen and known by everybody to be a miracle, that they would know that what was about to happen could only happen because God was God of the earth. That there would be no doubt in anybody's minds that this was not Elijah, but that this was the God of heaven who was about to act. And then Elijah prayed that God, to God and asked him to confirm his words for God's glory. He prayed that God would so move that the hearts of the people would be turned back to him, that the people would repent of their idolatry and give glory to God in heaven. He prayed according to the knowledge of God in faith that God would do what he had promised to do. We may never think we would be guilty of praying to pagan gods, yet often we may be guilty of praying like the pagan prays. It is strong in the Catholic tradition to prescribe ritual prayers oft repeated to make penance for sin so that God would listen and someone would find forgiveness. 
rosaries or prayer beads are used to make sure that the faithful will be heard by the repetition, by the ritual, the, the time tested over and over again ritual. The number of times a prayer was repeated believed to indic indicate the earnestness of someone's prayer and the likelihood that they would receive forgiveness as that they were looking for. Well, even if we are not so formal in our approach, we often will find ourselves guilty of this same kind of error. How many times do we feel we must work so that God would take notice of us or so that God would realize just how badly we really want this thing to come to, to happen, how badly we want an answer to this particular prayer? But beloved, there is benefit, and if you have never tried praying on your knees or laying your face to the ground and praying in humility, putting yourself in the most humble position you can to lay prostrate before God and tremble before him, there is benefit to praying that way. Yet, if our goal is to make ourselves as uncomfortable as possible when we pray so that God will take us more seriously, then we are little better than the pagans. How many times do we, have to, do we feel we need to carefully lay out every single detail of our prayer? That we repeat ourselves, not out of earnestness, because we, we realize, I might not have said this correctly, as though God was somehow one of those genies that is looking for an opportunity to twist our words and give us something other than what was the desire of our hearts. How often do we pray as if the only thing that keeps us from receiving what we desire is our lack of eloquence? Well, does God need us to systematically tell us every need and desire if he is to answer our prayers or that we might receive the desires of our hearts? Well, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 65, 24, before they answer, or before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So God knows, and as Christ confirms in our text this morning, God knows and understands better than we do what we need and what we want. Not only does God know what we need, not only does he know what we want, but God has promised for all who are called according to his name that everything that happens will work toward their good. That God uses everything that happens for our good. Now notice I did not say everything for our temporal happiness but everything for our good. You may ask, why then? If God already knows everything that we need, why should we pray? Well, for one thing, the making our requests known to God is only one piece of why we pray. Prayer is not primarily about the communication of information between man and God. It is not, as the pagans see it, a technique in order to get what we want from God. Prayer is an expression of the relationship of trust that follows and flows from knowing God as Father. We pray first and foremost because we desire communion with our Father who is in heaven. 
our home, our citizenship is not here. It is in the presence of our King. We pray because we find our greatest comfort and joy with the Father. Because we know God is in control. Because we know that God's will is going to be accomplished and His purposes will stand. And we want to conform ourselves to who God is and what God is doing. I want to ask each of us a few questions that might help us gauge where our hearts are at in prayer. So let's, let's have a bit of a heart check together, shall we? Well, do we pray? That sounds like such a simple question. Yet it is something that we really need to ask ourselves. We may go through the motions. We may look to other people like we are praying. Yet there is a big difference between appearing to pray and actually having communion with our Father who is in heaven. Do we spend more time in prayer in the presence and in the sight of men or in secret before God alone? Do we crave public opportunities to pray so that we can show off just how spiritual, just how intelligent we are? so that we can find ways to use big theological terms in our prayers so that everybody will understand that we're well-read. Or to be able to speak in prayers of past victories so that everybody will know just how far we've come. Temptation in this is so subtle, but it is real. See, it is good to consider our words before we pray especially when we are praying in public. Yet as we consider carefully our words, we can so easily slip into the temptation to make sure that we sound wise and pious and learned. Temptation that is so much easier to defeat if we spend more time in prayer in secret than we do among men. Well, do we tell others that we are praying for them so that we can encourage them or so that we can look like we are caring? So that we can look like we're attentive? Are we diligent when we have told somebody that we will pray for them to remember them in prayer? Are we diligent not just to pray for them, but to look for ways to physically, tangibly care for them in their need? Or do we just want to look nice and know that that's the Christian thing to do? Sure, brother, I'll pray for that. It is so easy to say that we will pray for someone. We know it's the right thing to do. We know that Christians are supposed to be praying for one another. Even so, so often we promise and we forget. Or we promise to pray so that we can avoid having to do anything to give actual assistance in their need. Is prayer a natural part of our lives such that when we come together as a body, we crave to be able to share with our brothers and sisters the communion that we have been experiencing with our Father in private? 
are our corporate prayers, an extension of our private prayer lives, or are they a carefully orchestrated friction, sorry, fiction, to make us look like we are a people that pray? So easily, prayer can be used to publicly present an image that does not match the reality. In our modern age, we have to ask, what does our social media presence communicate about prayer? It's one of the absolute easiest ways to act like the hypocrites of old. How easy is it to garner the large audience to make sure that our, our bold, our wise, our eloquent prayers are seen and heard by thousands or maybe tens if you have as many friends as I do. As if our saying that we are praying online is the same as actually seeking the face of God with our concerns and for the needs of others. Beloved, I fear that I, that we, do not pray as we should. There are some among us who pray naturally. There are some among us and, and people in history that we can read biographies of, of people that were mighty and faithful in prayer, that could not hardly keep themselves from prayer. Men like Martin Luther that has said, I have so much to do today that if I do not spend three hours in prayer, I will never be able to get it done. I have never said that. For most of us, prayer comes only through effort and determination. We pray because we want to want to pray. We pray because we want to want closer communion with the Father. We want those things that we should have already. And we persevere and we push on because we know that God alone is faithful and can act and overcome our flesh. Beloved, I fear for the future of our families and of this church if we are not a people who are defined by our close communion with God. A people who are defined by close communion, founded and fostered in prayer. I fear what a lack of prayer seems to indicate about someone's life. The absence of an all-consuming love for God. I fear that if we do not, as individuals, well-rehearsed in secret prayer, come together collectively and seek the face of God together, that our light as a church in this community will ever be dim, that our community around us will remain in darkness. So, beloved, I ask you, I plead with you to join with me in the secret times, in the secret places in our lives, to seek the face of our God in prayer. Pray as though your very life in every moment depends upon your communion with God. Pray as though there is nothing else as important in your life as a closer relationship with your Father in heaven. 
Pray is if you actually understand and value the love that the Father has shown you in Christ. Oh, that we would be a people of prayer. Father, I plead with you. Make this a reality in my own heart. Drive me more often to prayer. Remove these, those foolish and empty obstacles that, that I present in my own mind or these excuses that I make of why I don't spend more time in prayer. Kill them. Destroy them. Father, I long closer communion with you. And I am weak. But I pray for you to move in my heart. And I pray for you to move in the heart of these people. Make us a people who pray. We know it is for our good. We pray it would all be for your glory. In Christ, we come before you. In Christ, we plead. In Christ, we stand confident, knowing your love. In his name we pray. Amen. We come now to the Lord's table. And I do not hold up as a standard the perfection that Christ calls us to or that I try to call us to as the baseline for when you are worthy to come and take of this table. Christ is worthy. In Christ, we are declared to be worthy. So as you come in just a moment, come not because you stand on your own worthy, but because Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed and you are trusting with everything that you have and that you are in his sacrifice, his righteousness, his place before God, that you are trusting in him, that you are walking a life that is marked not by perfection, but marked by obedience and faithfulness to him. So if that, is, if that is where you are at, then I call you to come forward and be able to receive this ordinary means of grace by which God will strengthen our faith. Father, we approach, approach you because of Christ. As we take the cup and the bread, we're declaring our need, our continued dependence on him. We are declaring his one time for all victory over sin and death. Our place with him because of faith, because of what he has done.
Father, use this to strengthen us, to grow us, to increase our faith, to increase our faithfulness, to increase our love for our Savior. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're to Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So as we do every week, when we remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, we think ahead and we remember and we look forward to it with longing to the feast, to the joy that we will have when we are freed from this body of death and we are in the presence of our Savior forever. Where the communion that we just get a taste of in prayer in our best moments is but a taste of the communion that we will have with the Father and with the Son forever and ever and ever when we are feasting with the Lamb. So as we go forward this week, and as we continue in song, let all these things stir us up to the longing to be with our Savior.